Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We are going to be in Hebrews 6 as we just finish out the chapter, getting ready for that great conversation we'll have in Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek. Um, but as well, if you've got your Bible, you want to turn to John 15. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back pocket in front of you. That's Hebrews chapter 6, John 15. Now, I know you've heard about the church picnic, but I need to apologize. Um, on Sunday, I said the church picnics pic- <laughs> picnic is next Saturday. And people came to me and they're like, no, 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 it's September 9th. And I go, yeah, next Saturday. Well, next Saturday is this coming Saturday. No, no, this coming Saturday is this Saturday, but next Saturday is the Saturday after. I'm Bahamian. English is my third language, okay? Um, No, in all sincerity, uh, the picnic is September 9th, um, but I want to highlight something that is new to Calvary Chapel South Bay. It's called work life, work life. And it is going to be on, it's on page Psalm 149, verse 1. So if you look at the bottom, you'll see Psalm 149, verse 1. And work life is going to be a 7 a.m. study, 7 a.m. study in our Coffee Life Cafe. And it's going to be led by Pastor George Bustamante, who's coming in from El Salvador. What we're doing is a study for those that go to work. They can come here at 7 a.m., get some worship, get some word, and then get to work on time. And so it's 7 a.m. in the cafe. Um, Now, listen, the cafe, we can hold about 100. So if you're number 159, you're going to be standing, okay? Um, So I want to let you know it's work life, 7 a.m., and it's on page 1, Psalm 149, verse 1. Um, That is going to be on Wednesday, September 13th. Um, Now, as we go to the Lord in the Word, why don't we prepare our hearts through prayer? Father, we are so grateful that we get the book of Hebrews, that you've given us your Word. You're speaking to us, just like you spoke to those in the first century. And Lord, you have been challenging us, even last week. You've been challenging us not to drift away, not to depart to stay close to the cross. And Lord, I pray that as we dig now further into Hebrews 6 and study Abraham's life for just a moment, that you'd give us wisdom and you'd give us insight. You'd speak to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been pretty clear through the book of Hebrews that these Hebrew Christians, because of the pressure of the culture, were turning from faith. We're experiencing that in our 21st century world. The statistics that we gave at the very early of this particular study are the amount of young people that are leaving the church because of the pressure of the culture. And up until this point of the epistle, written to the Hebrew Christians in the first century world, the writer is challenging them. You remember, he says, don't depart. He says, don't drift away. It's so easy 
one Sunday not to come to church, and then the next Sunday not to come to church, and then all of a sudden, like I met someone this past Sunday, they said, Pastor, I just drifted. After COVID, I was just so used to not going to church that I just am coming back. So you know what I said? I can't believe you. I said, welcome home. Welcome home. He says, hold on to the faith. He said, be diligent to enter into all that God has for you. And then he gets a little stronger in Hebrews chapter 5. He basically tells them, grow up, you babies. That's what he tells them. That's Hebrews. That's Chet's version, but it is Hebrews chapter 5. And then Hebrews chapter 6, he gives the strongest warning that we know in the word. He says, beware of apostasy. You can drift to a point where you reject the Lord Jesus Christ and choose to leave your salvation. You see, apostasy is defined at death, dying in your rejection of Christ. But through every exhortation, the Holy Spirit weaves just a tapestry of grace as he's explaining about our great high priest, Jesus See, Jesus has compassion on those who have gone astray or drifted away. Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because he became a little lower than the angels. He became a man for us. We can find mercy at the throne of grace. In other words, our great high priest, though you've drifted, though you've departed, everyone can return if they choose to repent. So in Hebrews chapter 6, we'll pick it up there in verse 9. He says, but beloved, as he continues this tapestry of grace, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. I know I've been heavy. He's trying to get across. I know that I've made some pretty strong points, but I want to encourage you. I want to assure you that I know you're saved. You see, he takes the time with the strong exhortation of not to be apostate to encourage them and to recognize their salvation. He goes on in verse 10 to say, For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love which you've shown toward his name in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. This is a great verse for me to make a plug for volunteers for Kid Life Ministry. (laughs) This is a great plug for me to do a commercial break to raise up greeters and to raise up Coffee Life volunteers because ministering to the saints is biblical. Serving the body of Christ is biblical. Now, I said it's a great opportunity, but I won't let you know that there's a great need at Kid Life Ministry. I could let you know there's a great need for greeters here at our church and ushers, but I I won't. I won't use this verse against you. Maybe just a little. But he says to this church, I know you're serving. I see the way that you're ministering. You're bearing fruit. And if you remember from last week, bearing fruit is an evidence of salvation. 
Oh, it goes all the way back just a couple of verses to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7. When the rain falls, the herbs are produced. When the rain of God, the blessing of God falls on the earth and the herbs are produced. Oh, it's a good tree. It's bearing fruit. In John chapter 15, I ask you to turn there. Jesus talks a lot about bearing fruit fruit. Go there with me. Keep your finger. Hebrews 6. We'll come back. Bearing fruit. John chapter 15. The reign of God has fallen in our life. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, oh, trust me, the rain has fallen, the living water you have drank, never to thirst again. But now with that rain that has fallen in your your life, there's an opportunity for you to bear fruit. Jesus says in John 15 this, I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch, not some of the branches, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I don't know if you know this about me, but I love to garden. You know why? My brain turns off. You don't know what it's like living in this brain. Ask my wife. She gets to deal with it most of the day. But my brain keeps going through the night. And I have found there are certain activities that I can do that it will turn my brain off. I love to garden. And do you know yesterday, yesterday I was gardening and I was pruning my roses. And when I was done pruning my roses, they looked hideous. I mean... At least the dead flower coming off of it looked better than what it looks like now. And I thought to myself, I'd had guests coming over. Why did I take the beauty of this rose, even though it was dead, it still looked like a dry rose on it, and make this flower so ugly? Well, the truth of the matter is, I was actually pruning to make the flower stronger the stock will be absolutely stronger. Now, just imagine if I was approaching that particular flower and it could talk. And as I'm coming to clip off its flower that's almost dead, it says, what in the world are you doing? What have I done wrong so that you would do this to me and make me look like this? How many of us do that when the Lord is bringing his clippers our direction? And he's pruning us, and we're asking him, what did we do wrong? And he's saying nothing. It's part of faith. I'm actually making you stronger. The Bible goes on to say, you are already clean, verse 3, because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, look, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. I've noticed there's thieves in my neighborhood. I have a lemon tree. And there's one side of my lemon tree that is always bare, the sidewalk side. And then one day I was walking outside and there was someone picking lemons from my tree. It was someone from our church. Well, I was going to make you lemon tarts. 
Really? No, I'm happy to share because my lemon tree produces more fruit than I could ever. I mean, if I ate as many or even used as many, if I drank the lemonade that came off that tree, I would walk around like this my whole life. I'm happy to share because my lemon tree doesn't just simply bear fruit, it bears much fruit. Now, for those of you that know where I live and know where my lemon tree is, if I don't have any lemons on tomorrow, that will be a problem. He says, bear much fruit. I've got two questions for you. Are you bearing any fruit? And is your fruit tasty? Because he says in Hebrews that it bears herbs and the herbs are useful for the person that planted them. In other words, he puts the herbs in his soup. He puts his herbs in his soup. When someone bites off of your fruit, is it tasty or is it sour? Well, Christian fruit, I gave you some homework. Because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, you will know them by their fruits. When I see an apricot, I know it's an apricot. But if I bite into it and it tastes like a kumquat, there's an issue with the apricot. If I bite into an apple and it tastes like a grape, there's a problem with the apple. The Bible says you will know them by their fruits. When someone takes a bite out of your life, they taste and see who you are. What do they taste? Spinach? That's not fruit. I know it's not a fruit. What do they taste? Liver? When we moved over from Bombas, we ate a lot of liver. We were immigrants. That's all we could afford, liver and onions. My mom's right here. She's like, we didn't eat just liver. We ate a lot of it, okay? Now, here's the deal. Let me explain something. I despise liver. I don't like liver. I don't, when I go and I, I, I shop at Numero Uno and they sell liver there, I can't even walk by the liver. When I see it, I have this thing that happens in me. Now just imagine if someone looks at you and they think they're looking at this beautiful red juicy fruit and they take a bite and it's liver. Some of you just throw up in your mouth. And I did it on purpose. Because if I go to your work and I ask, which is the Christian? Would they go, (laughs) that one? (laughs) You see, the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. And a good tree can only bear good fruit. So I want to go dissect your homework a little bit. Let's take a look at the first one that I gave you. Do you remember a Christ-like character? comes from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I'm going to give you a spiritual revelation right now. Get ready. Write it down. Love is actually loving. Did you feel, did you get it? Do you know that joy is actually joyful? Do you know that peace is actually peaceful? In other words, we know this. Love, joy, peace. We we know them all. We've memorized them in Sunday school. But are we them? 
And what I want to do is I want to break down this Christ-like character into three different parts. The first one is love, joy, peace. You see, love, joy, peace, this is the result of my relationship with God. Because I'm in a relationship with God, he so loved me, I'm a loving person. Because I'm in a relationship with God, he gives me inexpressible joy, no matter what I'm going through, and he gives me a peace that passes understanding. So when the world is in the midst of chaos, I've got the goodness of God in my life. The next three, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness. You see, these three are my response in my relationship with others. I'm long-suffering with others. I'm kind to others. I'm good to others. But the final three, oh, these are my personal response where I take responsibility for my own faithfulness, my own gentleness, and my own self-control. And if I divide these up into God, others, and myself, I can see that the third, faithfulness, I've got to be faithful. The gentleness, I need to be gentle. Let my gentleness be known to all men, and I need to be self-controlled. You ever gone on a diet? What do you think about all day long when you go on a diet? Everything you can't have. How many are on a diet right now? Anyone on a diet? Anyone on a diet? Okay, here we go. Chocolate cake. <laughs> Pastor Chet, you are supposed to edify. I am right now. I'm testing you. No, let me explain. Let me help you understand. Self-control, that's my personal responsibility before the Lord. Are you bearing this fruit? Are you actually loving? Are you actually joyful? Are you actually peaceful? Are you kind? Or when you walk in the room, do people run? <laughs> Secondly, homework. The Bible says much fruit is our good works. Take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. That you may walk worthy of the Lord. This is his prayer for the Colossian church. Fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, the more you know God, the more you're going to want to serve him because he's so great. This is Paul's prayer for the church, that they would be filled with good works. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus is commending the church at Ephesus? What he says to the church of Ephesus as his commendation is this, you labored, you did a lot of work for my name's sake, and you've not become weary. Good works. Good works. Did you used to go on mission trips? And now you don't go anymore because you used to. I used to serve in kid life, but kid life, but I've been in this church 30 years now. I've moved on. I used to be a greeter, but I'm not friendly anymore, so I decided not to be one. I used to serve in the parking lot ministry until they almost ran me over. How many used to's do we have? Don't raise your hand. A faithful witness. It's our third way to bear fruit. A faithful witness. Paul, speaking to the Roman church, he says this, Now I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some good fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. If you're a believer, and you're a believer tree, listen, what's bearing out of you is Christ-like character, 
What's bearing out of you is good works. And what's bearing out of you is a faithful witness. You love to tell people about Jesus. You love to help them know Jesus better. You love to bring them to Christ. You, look how we celebrate when we let you know that our Jane, our only girl on the India trip, led a woman to Jesus in India. We celebrate one person. Imagine your life of celebration wherever you go giving the gospel. Imagine. Fourthly, sacrifice of praise. If you're a believing tree, you give the sacrifice of praise. Look at the verse. Therefore, Hebrews 13, 15, Therefore by him, Jesus Christ, in other words, he's the reason, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That means even if I don't feel like singing, I sing. Because I don't live by my feelings, I live by faith. And what God has done for me is good enough that no matter what I'm going through, he is good. And I can praise him. Pastor Steph told me a story of an 80-year-old friend of his. And she's been serving the Lord her whole life. And she fell. A dog attacked her. And she fell. And she broke her knee. She broke her leg. It's like the story of Job. And she said to the Lord, Is this the good that you give me after so many years of following you? She said the Lord spoke so clearly to her. I am your good. What else could this world offer? And we've got Jesus. And no matter what we're going through, we can offer the sacrifice of praise. You may not feel it, but you still by faith give glory to God, no matter what we're going through. And then finally, a believing tree, oh, the kind of fruit that it bears is generous giving. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. God generously, generously gave his son. He gave his best. He generously gave his best, his son, Jesus Christ. You know what I always say? The quickest way to personal surplus is through great generosity. The quickest way to surplus is through your generosity. And so many people hold on to what they believe is theirs. But we're just stewards. And God has given us in order for us to give. So he says, listen, I know that you're saved. I see that you're ministering. I see that you're bearing fruit. Go back with me to Hebrews as he continues this encouragement. He now says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit The promises. Let me tell you what he's saying. You're bearing good fruit. You used to bear good fruit. Don't get lazy. There's two words here that that you need to see, and maybe you'll circle them in your Bible. The first word is in the the verse 11, diligence. The second word is in verse 12, sluggish. Sluggish is the exact opposite of, of diligence. 
And he's encouraging them. Why don't you keep on producing fruit? And the way that it's communicated is keep on keeping on producing fruit. You see, we've got to be careful of what I call brownie patch Christianity. Do you remember the brownies? Do you remember Girl Scouts? Boy Scouts? I grew up in the church. We were Royal Rangers and Pioneers. The girls were called Pioneers. The boys were called Royal Rangers, okay? And if we accomplished something, we got a patch. So I'll never forget, I put my boys in Royal Rangers, and I thought, okay, I want you to go through Royal Rangers. I went through Royal Rangers, and you're going to get the patch. And my son, he came home with the sewing patch. Oh, wow, you learned how to sew. And my son came home with the first aid patch. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know first aid. And then one day, he fell down, he ripped his jeans, and he, had a, he, he was bleeding. And I go, son, don't worry about it. You can sew those pants back, and you know exactly what to do on your knee. And he goes, Dad, I have no idea how to sew. And I don't know what to do with my knee. And I go, son, but you got the patch. Yeah, I got the patch, but I don't know what to do. So many Christians live that way. They get the mission trip badge. They're not mission-minded. They just did the mission trip, so they got the badge. So many Christians live with the kid life patch. I served kid life for a year. I got the kid life patch. Don't have to do that again. So many Christians get the greeter patch. I was a greeter once. (laughs) There it is. I'm the greeter. I got the patch. I'm telling you, I serve the Lord. I got the whole patch. In fact, when I come to church, I want everyone to see my big sash. Look at all the patches that I've got. My patches are so heavy. I can't. Well, what are you doing today? I don't need to do anything. I got the patch. I wear it every every single week. I wear the patch. You know I've been here. I've been serving before. No, no, no. He says, I don't care about the patches. Keep on keeping on. And he points us to a man. And he points us to a man because he wants us to let us know it's not just Jesus that that did this. There was a man that they were very familiar with and we're very familiar with who through faith and patience inherited his promise. So take a look. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after, so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham, of course. He's writing Hebrew Christians. And he's using Abraham, the father of faith. I mean, there's no better person to point them towards because they're Jewish. And he is the Jewish hero. Better yet, he became the Jewish hero. Because I need to tell you about Abraham. I don't know if you know this. He gave his wife away twice. Okay? We all talk about biblical marriages. Please do not follow Abraham's Bible example. Okay? Don't give your wife away twice. Okay? Not a great example to follow. Okay? Out of fear, he gave his wife away twice. God's exposing Abraham and who he was. Let me tell you what else he did. His wife came to him and said, look, I can't have kids. Here's my maid. Go, go, go ahead with her. Hagar was cute. She's Egyptian. 
And Abraham's like, hey, if you want me to, sir, I mean, God bless you. <laughs> I'll just go on in the tent and we'll do a little, you know? Hey, this was Sarah's idea, okay? I'm telling you. Biblical marriage? Let me tell you something. Abraham slept with Hagar on Sarah's counsel. Okay, let's back up a little bit. Abraham, the father of faith. Do you know what he told Ishmael and, and Hagar to do a little bit later on in Ishmael's life? You need to leave. Excuse me? You're telling your son and your, not wife, but wife, but concubine, but I don't know who she is, that they need to leave because now Sarah's mad that she told you to do something and you actually listen to her? This is the Abraham we're talking about. Let me tell you who Abraham is and why the writer would point towards Abraham. There's hope for everyone who's drifted. There's hope for everyone that's departed. There's hope for everyone that has rejected Jesus to come back to Christ. Abraham's such a great example. And after he grew up, after he patiently endured. Now, let me tell you what the writer is referring to. It's Genesis 22. Write it down in your notes. Go do your homework tonight. It's Genesis chapter 22. Let me explain what happens. In Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham, sacrifice your son. Are you kidding me? This is the son of my promise. I, I mean, 100 years old. I can't believe that you want me now to sacrifice my son. I've never heard of this before. God never tells him to sacrifice your kids. You want me to do what? And Abraham went to sacrifice his son. And in Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. Abraham believed. And whether or not Isaac was going to die or not, he believed that even God could resurrect him. Abraham was a believer in the resurrection. He told his servants, we're going to go and we are going to come back. And as Abraham lifted up that knife, God got his attention and said, Abraham, look to the side. There's a ram. Let me tell you what a ram is. A male sheep. Because God was going to bring his male lamb to bring bring an end to sin for your life and deliver you the same way that God delivered Isaac. That's what Abraham believed. And after Abraham did what God told him to do, God shows up and says, I swear by myself, and I got a promise for you. I will bless you. So the writer of, the writer of Hebrews, he's using Abraham's life as his example for us to follow him in patience and faith. You see, go with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. Look what the Bible says. For men indeed swear by the greater, an oath for confession is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by oath. Stop there, if you would, for a moment. Remember, the writer is pointing us to Abraham's life as an example for us. And he reveals that this example is for the heirs of promise. What does that mean? You see, God's promise to Abraham was Jesus. After he obeyed, 
Look carefully, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. The Bible says this. Genesis chapter 22. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Do you know what God was promising Abraham? Out of your seed, Jesus is going to come. We are heirs of the promise. He's speaking to us, and he's encouraging them, and he's encouraging us that if we faithfully endure in this life, just like Abraham inherited his promise when he faithfully endured, you will inherit your promise of eternal life. It is a sure deal, and he's using Abraham's life as an example. Now, he's already given us how we can endure, because let me, let's be honest. Sometimes it's rough, isn't it? Pressure, problems, and persecution. A woman came up to me in the lobby one particular Sunday, probably 70, 80 years old. She recently got saved, and her children will no longer talk to her. She was weeping out in the lobby. My children have rejected me. Can you imagine raising your children? Can you imagine? I, you cannot speak to your grandchildren. This life offers a lot of problems. This life offers a lot of pressure. This life offers a lot of persecution. How am I going to be able to stand? Thank you very much, okay? I know I'm going to have salvation, and I know that I'm going to have eternal life if I faithfully endure. But Lord, how in the world will I make it? Do you remember what he said in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3? Just go back up, if you would, for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3, when we study this, I ask you to circle, to outline it, that we come back to it. Look at verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. What the writer is saying is you can endure because God is working in you. The power of God will give you the ability to endure. And as Abraham Our dependence on God will give us the faith and the patience that we need in order to make it through life. Abraham believed he relied on God when he told his servants, we will come back to you. He was completely dependent on God. And what the writer is getting across to us, we can endure if we choose to rely on God. Now, you might think it's difficult. And I'm sure they did as well, because some of them were going to jail. Some of them were being persecuted to the place of death. So what the writer does, he gives us two of God's characters so that we can know we can trust and rely on him to make it through. Look what he says. If you would go back with me to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, I want you to see it. He says this, For God is not unjust to forget your work. Number one of the two, God's not unjust. You see, that word is righteous. He's not unrighteous. He never does anything wrong. God lives by complete correctness all of the time. 
It would be wrong of God to forget what you've done. And because he can't ever do wrong, you're safe. He will never forget the works that you have done. So when we die, God is not going to all of a sudden struggle with amnesia and forget that you've accepted Christ and that you've lived for him. He's not going to go, wait a second, where's your name? God can't be faulted with wrongdoing. So if your name's not in the book, it's not God's fault. He's not unjust. He won't forget. You're not going to die and get to heaven and go, wait a second, (laughs) Sam, don't see your name. What's your name? I don't know who you are. Forgot for a moment, struggling with a little bit of uh, amnesia. No, no, God's not unjust. He'll never struggle with amnesia. uh, uh, God never has gotten a concussion. It's not like he's going to forget everything that you've done. God is not unjust. I don't know if you know this, but several years ago, I was surfing in Oaxaca, Mexico, and I shouldn't have gone out. It was big. My surfboard hit me in my head, and I got a major concussion. Then, two weeks later, I came home. We had a Bernese Mountain Dog at the time. He was 120 pounds. He jumped on the bed. He turned, and his hip hit me in my temple, the same spot my board hit me, and it knocked me out and gave me another concussion. My, I woke up to my son laughing at me. That's my family. And I looked at him, and I didn't know who he was. For two months... I couldn't remember my children's names. I would look at Andrea. I knew she was my wife. But I was like, and thank God I didn't call her another name. But like, I just, I was, I was just trying to remember like, you're Andrea, right? And I would go through the list of my children and I just couldn't remember. I had to, I was still teaching. I was teaching the word. And so I would have to write out word for word what I was teaching because I'd be on stage and be like, Now, who are you, and why am I here, and what am I doing? God doesn't struggle with that. He's not unjust. He won't forget that you're saved. You can trust him for it. He will never forget. He's not unjust. He doesn't forget. Oh, 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 Pastor Chet, yes, he does. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 Yes, he does forget, Chet. He better forget. <laughs> I've done a few things I want him to forget about. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, I, even I, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I told you God's for- forgetful. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Wait a second, Pastor Chet. I thought you said that God can't forget. What does it mean he will remember no more? I mean, I grew up like my mom always used to tell me, forgive and forget. God does. That's an impossible request. And I believe that God doesn't allow us to forget So we never make the dumb mistakes that we made. Again, can you imagine if we forgot every dumb mistake that we made and we just kept repeating them? We'd be like the mouse going around and around and around and around. It'd be ridiculous. But what does forgive and forget? What does it mean? Remember your sins no more. I need to remind you of a few things. God's omniscient. That means he knows everything and he's known everything all the time. He's known everything eternally. Do you know that God knew about the internet before Al Gore? (laughs) 
He did. I know Al Gore invented it, but God knew before. Do you know that God knew about Tesla long before Mr. Musk? God knows everything for eternity. He knows everything. He's omniscient. There's, nev- there's nothing he doesn't know. That's why you can't disappoint God. He knows you're going to do it. God doesn't go in heaven. How did that happen? I think I just gave myself another concussion. <laughs> oh, do you see where I go? Whoa, okay. I'm back. What's my name? <laughs> no, 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 no. We have to understand this Hebrew word is the word zakar. It doesn't mean he forgot and all of a sudden he remembered. It means he calls it to mind. Let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says that God remembered Noah and that he was in the ark and he delivered him. In other words, it was time. Then it says in Genesis 30, 22, he remembered Rachel and it was her time to get pregnant, to get pregnant and she gave birth to Joseph. And when the Bible is saying that he remembers no more, it's not saying he forgets. He's omniscient. It's when he remembered Noah, he took action and delivered. When he remembered Rachel, he took action and opened her womb. You see, God choosing not to remember that he's choosing not to take action against your sin. He remembers no more. He treats us as if we've never sinned. He chooses to not take action against us. So choosing to forgive and forget means that you are choosing not to take vengeful action against the person that hurts you. So I would say forgive and forget. Amen? Amen. Do you understand? You see, remember no more has no idea, no concept of him not forgetting. Your salvation is secure. But number two thing about God that he wants to get across, would you take a look once again at verse 13? For when God made a promise, God made a promise. There's something about God. He's a promise maker and he's a promise keeper. The Bible says he swore by himself because there was no one greater than he. Do you remember when you stole the cookies from the cookie jar? And it was you and your brother. Your mom goes, who took it? I swear to... I didn't do it. Your brother goes, you're a liar. I swear, I swear on my... And you name it. How many ever did that? Anybody? Anybody? Anyone? Anyone? Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Everything else is from the devil. Let me tell you why. When you have to add more than yes and no, you've already created a testimony that your word is not honorable. So if you've got to swear to, but God, he's, there's no one greater than God. And what you do is you swear on someone that's greater than you, but there's no one greater than God. So the Bible says that God swore on his own name. He risked his own reputation in the fact that he is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Look at Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater an oath for confirmation for them and an end of all dispute. It's why we go into a courtroom, put our hand on a Bible and say, I solemnly swear. You're purposing to swear above something better than yourself. And the Bible makes it very clear 
There is no one greater than God. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, God says of himself, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Let me tell you what this is in context to. He says, I'm the Lord, there's no other. He's letting us know in Isaiah chapter 45 about the about a man by the name of Cyrus who's not even born yet that's going to deliver the Jewish people. And Isaiah, God tells Isaiah the man's name over a hundred years before the man is even born. I'm the Lord. I can do that. I know everything, and I know everything all the time. And nothing I say will ever come back void because I know everything. In Isaiah chapter 55, listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. When God makes a promise, he knows he can fulfill it. In fact, he's already seen it fulfilled. He's God. But there's a couple more things that the writer wants you to know about our promise-making God. Would you look at verse 17? Take a look. It's verse 17. He says this. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, there's the first, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, We might have strong consolation. We might be greatly encouraged who have fled for refuge to lay the hope of which is set before us. He says the immutability of his counsel. He goes on to express God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say today you're saved and tomorrow I'm mad at you. And you're not saved. He makes a promise that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you purpose to patiently endure in this life, salvation is available for you. Because when he says something, he means it for an eternity. He doesn't change. Now this word immutable is an incredible word. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used, and it's only in association with God. The Bible is making it very clear. God is the only unchangeable one. In other words, if he's promised salvation to those who believe, he will not take it from you. But the second thing he says, there's two immutable things. It's impossible for God to lie. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In fact, Jesus said, as the Son of God, God himself, He said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Take a look at the screen. Maybe you'll take a snapshot of this. Understand what God says of himself. In Psalm 31.5, Isaiah 65.6, the Bible says he's the God of truth. He's, He's the maker of truth. In John 7, 28, Jesus says of him, he who sent me is true. It's the testimony of Jesus. And then again, in John 17, 3, he says the only true God. And then in verse 17, your word is true. He said, out, he is truth. Everything he says is truth because he's the God of truth. I love Romans chapter 3, verse 5. The Bible says, even if everyone else is a liar, God is is true. Can you trust that? Because these truths about God's character 
should encourage us. It should encourage those who need to flee to refuge. Now, if you're a Hebrew and you read verse 17, for those who have fled for refuge, every Hebrew would know exactly what the writer is talking about, but we Gentiles, we don't know what he's talking about. You see, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, God wanted to help people that made big mistakes. And if you were out in the field and you were chopping your wood and your axe head came off and hit someone in the head and they died, the family had the responsibility to avenge the death. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So what God did was he established six cities of refuge. Three on the east side and three on the west side of the Jordan. So if there was an accident, uh, let me give you an example. Um, I used to make a farm in Liberia, and I'm not used to working with just a machete. So one day I'm working with the machete, and I'm going all day long. My hands are blistery, and I went to swing the machete. I couldn't hold any longer, and the next thing you know, the machete is swinging like a helicopter through all the Africans. Praise God, not one of them hit him. The next day we go back to the farm. I noticed none of the Africans were around me. So I went up to them, and I go, why don't you guys want to work with me? He goes, because you're deadly. Now, if my axe head flew off and killed someone, I could run to a city of refuge, and I would be given a proper trial to determine, did I mean to do it, or was it an accident? And if it was an accident... I then had to stay at the city of refuge until the high priest that was alive, until he died, which would allow all of the unforgiving feelings and resentment to kind of reside a little bit. And then once the high priest died, I would be able to be released. So as soon as he read, flee to the city of refuge, oh, the Hebrews knew exactly what he was trying to get across. That if you killed someone, if you committed a crime, you could run and have a fair trial. Jesus is our city of refuge. And he's our great high priest. And he's going to live eternity. So we get to be in the city of refuge for an eternity. You see, the hope that's set before us is eternal life. It's set before us because we're not dead yet, and they weren't dead yet. There's a hope that's for us. When we die, we'll see Jesus, and we can rest in that. And how the writer concludes is with an incredible illustration. And I want us to look at verse 19 and 20 where we close. This hope, this hope of eternal life, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. It enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having come high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. As we close, I have a question for you. I've told you God don't lie. And God's not unjust. With that information, I've got one question. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Think about it for just a minute. 
Have you ever doubted your salvation? Because that was their problem. You see, after the strong exhortation of don't be an apostate, they're now wondering, wait a second, am I really saved? So he tells them, listen, God's not going to lie to you. If you believe in Jesus, you're saved, period. He's not unjust. He's going to remember. He, he doesn't forget. But they were still struggling with doubting their salvation. And what the writer does is he says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. He's saying, the soul is the root of the problem. Because the soul is the part of us that feels. And some days, when we've done really great, and we've got all the patches, and we've served God, like we know we're saved. But some days, we yell at our kids, we said a bad word, and we're wondering, am I saved? It's the soul. And because the Lord knows the tumultuous seas of our emotions, he's provided an anchor to hold us. Let me tell you about anchors. I'm from the Bahamas. I know a lot about anchors. Anchors were the Christian symbol of the first century world. In fact, we have found over 60 drawings of anchors in the catacombs. They didn't wear a cross. They wore an anchor. And the anchor was a symbol of Christianity. But let me tell you something about an anchor. An anchor is only useful when you can't see it, but you're tied to it. It's only useful. It's not useful on the boat. It's useful when you can't see it, but you're tied to it. It's useful when it drops to the depths, holds fast to a rock, and keeps you safe in the waves. So what the writer is doing is keeping this in context. A ship would sail into a harbor. They didn't have ports and docks and things like that. They would sail into a harbor and they would anchor their boat in the harbor, in the safe haven of the harbor. And they'd drop the anchor. But sometimes you had to find where to drop the anchor. So a small boat, which was called a forerunner, Greek word, the forerunner would take the anchor in the small boat and go ahead of the ship to find the exact spot to drop the anchor so that the boat would be sure and steadfast and would it move. And what the writer is trying to get across, and I think incredibly, our anchor is Jesus. But he's not anchored in the depths of the ocean. He's anchored in the heights of heaven. Let me tell you what Jesus has done. Jesus has gone before us into the safest harbor. He's with God the Father. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And our belief in Jesus is the rope that ties us to the anchor. And though we can't see him, he is holding us sure and steadfast to the heart of heaven, our Father. Church, you can be sure that he will steadfastly hold you through this life and the next. Amen? Lord, I have to believe in a crowd this size, there are some that do doubt their salvation. Their souls 
are in a tumultuous sea. Some days they're following you. Some days they smoke a cigarette and wonder, am I saved? Some days they're ready to serve at kid life. Some days they want to strangle their kids. Some days they're ready to give their life for you. Some days they're just ready to give up on life. I'm so grateful that you're the anchor for our soul. That though our emotions may go up and may go down, you don't lie. You'll never leave us or forsake us. You're not unjust. You won't forget about us. You're with us. You're Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Lord, I pray for the discouraged saint. Would you encourage them with the truth that you don't lie? You're not unjust. And would you be right now for them the anchor of their soul and assure them, build them up. If that ministers to you, I want to pray for you. Would you just just silently lift your hand up and put it down? I just want to pray for you real quick. I see you. I see you. I see you. Yeah. All over this room. Lord, I pray for every humble hand that was raised. Assure them of their salvation. Be the anchor for their soul. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.